when you started doing LP investments and how that shifted over time and why you go invest with other people. I didn't get into real estate with the goal, but just I think like any other investor, I believed in the hard asset aspect of it. I believed in all the different ways that the real estate works. That's how I started. And then I kind of just slowly, okay, that's great. I'm gonna go buy some rental properties and then bought another and then bought a little bit bigger. And it just sort of snowballed to this, you know, we sit here today. I think that that the key thing for me, and you, you talk about investing in, in other people's deals and diversifying, who is the sponsor that you're betting on? You know, finding people you, you can trust in, in those, whether it's a different vertical, different geography. Uh, but I'm always thinking about who am I investing with more than what? Welcome to another episode. My name is Pascal Wagner, the host of the Grow Your Cashflow podcast. If you're new here, we help credit investors grow and diversify their monthly cash flow through low risk private placements. To be clear, we're not financial advisors providing you advice on your specific financial situation, but our email list, our social content, and this podcast are all designed to help you learn how to find and vet passive income investment opportunities. So that someday when you're looking to grow your cash flow, that you'll consider working with us. And even if you never invest with us here, at the very least, we want to help accelerate your ability to gain financial freedom. So with that, let's dive in. Hey, welcome, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So uh, could you give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, I'm Andrew Campbell, a founder of Wildhorn Capital. Uh, we're based in Austin. I was born and raised here. And we've got about 4,000, a little over 4,000 uh, multifamily units uh, own and operate here in, in Central Texas. So kind of between Austin and San Antonio. Uh, started in 2016. Um, and prior to that, I was investing kind of on my own uh, account and just grew a, a portfolio to the place that it made sense to consolidate, do larger deals, uh, start looking at raising some outside capital, but I've uh, kind of had our had our head down, focused in our backyard and uh, continue to have fun every day doing it. So we're, we're still doing it. I love it. And so one of the things what I wanted to do is, you know, on this show, I love to bring out different fund managers and just get to know them and understand what are the nuances and differences between, you know, working with an operator like you versus the, the hundreds of others that exist out there. So I'm, I'm excited to dive in here. You, you mentioned that you are in Austin and San Antonio. I also know that you specialize in two very specific types of investments, which are build to rent and uh, multifamily. Can you just talk a little bit about um, why you chose those two? Uh, yeah, you know, and I, I probably goes back into to my, you know, just personal background again, sort of prior to, to Wildhorn, I had uh, built a portfolio of, of rental, you know, small duplexes, fourplexes, small apartment complexes. It's what I know. I, I think it always, it's real estate is not particularly multifamily, not super complicated. You know, you, you put some leverage on it. Don't get over levered, but you have a loan. Uh, you have renters that pay the mortgage. You're paying down the loan. Things are, are, are amortizing, appreciating. So it's always made sense um, and felt comfortable uh, to me. And so I, I think that's, why we've stayed in sort of residential uh, housing. So, you know, multifamily, you know, build to rent is sort of, it's a very new acronym, BTR, B2R. A lot of people are talking about it, but it, it's it's residential housing at the end of the day. It's horizontal apartments, uh, you know, kind of renting homes instead of 
1500 square foot home instead of an 800 foot apartment. But, um, it's always kind of been, been the focus. And I think the, maybe the, the differentiator, uh, that, that, that's a we've got or sort of maybe the, the constraints we put on ourselves is geography. You know, so, you know, I've born and raised in Austin uh, and feel like lucky got born right age, right time, uh, in a, in a city that's exploding in growth. Um, and then really, think that that's been a key part of both our success, but sort of our responsibility to, to investors that not looking at growing nationally into a bunch of new markets that you're not super familiar with, but focused on our backyard and the intimate knowledge we've got in where you want to be um, and kind of where you don't want to be, and then leveraging relationships to to find deals that, that, that do make sense. And it's just staying home local and to focus on, on residential housing. It, it's meant you know, B2R and, and multifamily are kind of the two, the two main uh, areas that we focus on. Okay. Help, helpful to have the, the background. You mentioned this term horizontal housing. Can you just briefly talk about that? So, you know, build to rent, you'll hear the acronym BTR, B2R, uh, BFR, build for rent, SFR, single family for rent, all describing the same basic concept, which is a community purpose built to have homes that you're renting to people. Um, and so from an operations standpoint, what we do as an operator, it's not very different, whether it's a six story apartment building, you know, traditional sort of multifamily or a three story garden, you know, walk up apartment complex versus a 156 unit uh, B2R community. People call those horizontal apartments because uh, they're just their homes and they stretch more horizontally rather than they're not the big appeal to them from a renter standpoint. No one lives above you. You, know, you typically you've got an attached garage. Uh, you're signing the same type of lease. So it, it, it looks and feels and operates just like an apartment. But you'll hear them called horizontal apartment uh, is a generally an easy way to describe the, the BTR, B2R concept. How'd you get into doing both? Or why do both strategically? Because I imagine there's some overhead and, you know, like managing an apartment building is different than, than a horizontal community. There are some slight nuances, uh, for sure. You know, and, and you look at it, there's a lot more rooftops, uh, on a, on a horizontal BTR deal than there is a traditional garden deal. But from an operations standpoint, the staffing, you know, the leasing model, the marketing, all of that is, is very similar. You know, the demographics may be slightly different, but not more so than, say, a, a brand new class A apartment, you know, which we have several of versus a 1980s, you know, class B minus apartment. There's a different clientele and different demographics. So it's not a big jump. And I don't necessarily even think of it as a, as a very different food group. Um, you know, again, BTR, a new concept, I think, and something that, that has attracted a lot of, of attention from a capital standpoint and the institutional you know, capital world, and I think kind of two different trends that are happening that, that make it grow. Number one is just the, the sort of millennial generation aging out of wanting to live in an apartment complex. And when you look at the average size of an apartment these days is about 750 feet, you know, maybe 800 square feet. They're mostly one bedroom with some two bedroom units. Um, that's just not that much space. And as people are Coupling up, having kids, you know, wanting more space, wanting a garage, their own yard. This product, you know, this is in essence, it's a twelve to fifteen hundred square foot home. Um, no one lives above you. That that's makes sense for people in their life stage. 
it also makes sense kind of on the other end of the spectrum, more of an empty nester, you know, thinking what, wanting to downsize, not wanting the maintenance, the, the upkeep, take care of your yard, take care of just, you know, all the things that come with home ownership um, makes sense to, for that demographic as well. And then just financially, you look at sort of the, the challenge of affording a home, you know, take off the, the, the interest rates and the, the rise in rates in the last year, but it's been harder and harder to afford a home, uh, even prior to that, even now more so. Um, and that's one of the things that those are the reasons that BTR has become a, a, a popular product type. So I, I try to go at this from the educational perspective of, okay, there are so many funds out there. What is, the thing that makes uh, your fund unique or maybe let's even lower the educational barrier of how your fund works. Like, let's talk about who's the customer that you're trying to attract or is it someone who's trying to grow their equity or is it someone who is, um, you know, looking for cons- consistent cash flow? Like obviously you're doing multifamily. Are you doing value adds where you have, you know, a period of time when someone invests so that they don't get cash flow for a year or two and then, and then they should expect to see kind of monthly or quarterly cash flow from that. How you've structured your investment uh, and and the way that you service your investors and why you've chosen to do it that way. Okay, no, and then, so a lot to lot to go through and, and unpack there. Uh, all super relevant and, and good good conversation. Um, you said something about the the people you're trying to attract or or, or you know advertise to. And I think one thing, and maybe it's just nuance, maybe it's my marketing and advertising background. Actually, I have an advertising degree uh, undergrad, but we've never gone out and said, Hey, we want to be advertising to people. You know what? We've never run a paid ad. Don't do search advert. Like it's, I think we are, we are doing deals that we like and believe in investing in. And again, my background prior to Wildhorn, like I, I love real estate and I like investing in it. We're doing deals that are interesting. And then I think we view it as, hey, we're it's an opportunity to invest if, if you like the deal. So you know, it's not a it's not a sales tactic or a marketing platform. Sure, you want to be easy to be found, but I think that's one. You know, maybe it's a subtle nuance, but but we're we're doing deals because we believe in them, we've got conviction about them. And then if if you think it, if you agree with that thesis, you know, we'd love to to have you in that deal. So that's maybe one place to. To, to start. Second thing you said, you know, kind of our fund versus another fund. So we do everything. Let's dive into that real quick. So I, I think what I'm trying to get into here is I think there are very there are different types of investors. There are the investors who are 60 and who are retiring and they don't want to take a lot of risk and they are looking for consistent monthly passive income so they can like peace out and you know, not worry about things for the rest of their life. And then there are yep. the demographic of uh, maybe younger individuals. Uh, either they work W twos, or they are you know senior executives at companies, uh, or they may even run their own business. And they have you know varying from a limited amount of cash flow that they stock away each month, maybe as a W two employee, to maybe more of a business owner that you know is maybe getting ten, twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars a month, and they're looking to place that capital. And so. Those two, those two people are very different types of people. And so when I'm asking you, like, I'd love to dive in, like, who are you targeting? Are you targeting the, like, or, or maybe I would say, you know, you're saying you're not targeting anyone, but like, let's talk about of the demographic of the investors that you have in your fund. I mean, you guys, I think you have over like 400 million or something. Like you have, you have a solid investor base. Um, 
who who are those people? Why are they investing with you? Sure. Well, so I love it. Um, I think they're very different, as you pointed out. I think what I what I found to be really interesting. It also the demographics certainly can play a, a part in that, but more so, it's just kind of the way people are wired. You know, some people are risk on, and and they they're always you know looking for opportunistic returns, and yeah, we always say, hey, everything's risk adjusted. So. A 20 IRR is a heck of a lot more risky than a 13 IRR, no matter what the, you know, the pro formas say, like, it just, you got to know that. And some people risk on and some people are risk off. And I think it's, it's as much about their, their mindset, uh, the demographic and sort of life stage has some impact to that. But I think it's, it's more just the unique story. And, and that's one of the things I love about this space and getting connected with people is, I mean, literally on a first call, getting to know somebody you're probably learning things about them that their best friends may not know. They're, hey, this is how much you know my net worth is, or kind of what my investing goals are. How what you know I'm trying to get to retire in five years, or get my kids through school. Or what, what like really personal sort of intimate details. And I think that that is it, it's great. It's it's fun to kind of get to know people on that sort of a level and understand what what their goals are. Um, we've kind of we do deals deal by deal, so we don't have a, a fun structure. We've done and we have value add deals that are three to five year, you know, that's typically more get in quicker, renovate units and, and get out. And we've been fortunate, we've exited a bunch of, of those deals. We've got longer term, you know, bought brand new class A uh, projects that are going to be 10 year holds that are meant to be cash flow uh, oriented. And you're not looking at an IRR as much because the appreciation is, is you're looking at, Hey, I've got a fixed interest rate, almost like a REIT type structure. So we've, we've taken the attitude. It's really more finding an asset and a business plan that we have conviction about could be long-term, you know, more cash flow oriented. It could be a shorter value add or an opportunistic redevelopment type opportunity or, or something in between. But if we find something and we have conviction about it and a real strong point of view, we believe in it, then you know we're going to go forward with it. And, and then again, kind of present that opportunity, recognizing that, hey, if it's a core plus long term opportunity, you're not the people that love risk won't won't do it. It's it's kind of funny because on the the other end of the spectrum, that cash flow oriented, you know, maybe you know older uh, empty nester is concerned. Hey, a ten year, I don't I don't I don't want to do something for 10 years. I don't know. I'm 73 years old, 10 years from I'm 83. Like I, I'm, I want a shorter term duration. So again, it's unique to people, uh, but kind of taking the approach of once we find something that we believe in, take it to the, to the market. And, in you know, there, there are investors that have even the same investor, different points in time um, have different operate mentalities. Totally. Yeah, no. Okay. No, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for diving in there. Uh, yeah, keep going with like what makes you unique. You were going, you were going through the steps. Um, well, so, so I think that's a that's a part of it, right? That we're we're looking for interesting deals. It's not just a one size fits all, or we're only looking for this one specific thing. I, I think that the constraints that we've put on again, it's it's going to be Central Texas based. I believe that leveraging the relationships, having a really intimate knowledge of, hey, you're in the right area of town, but you know what? Are you on the right intersection? Are you on the right side? Are you, the Northwest corner is great. The Southeast is not great. Like you need to know those things and just have always felt much easier 
to know those because we're, we're here. We grew up here. We know it. Um, and, and I think the responsibility of, of raising capital, of, you know, being a steward of somebody's investment that I'm never going to know that and feel as comfortable in a market that, that's not central Texas. You know, I'm never going to know any, I pick a city as well as I know this because I've been here for 43 years. Um, and so I think that's, I don't know if it's differentiated or not, but it's something that I think we do take seriously. And that the responsibility of, you know, raising money. I mean, you mentioned, I, I don't know what our portfolio is worth, eight, $900 million. That's a lot of money. That's a big responsibility. I don't, I don't want to be flipping about, oh, well, you now we're, we're riding the wave in the, the Carolinas. I think the Carolinas have been on fire and they're doing great. I, I've visited them a few times, but I'm never going to know it as well as I know Austin. So I'm going to leave that for somebody that grew up there or is doing, you know, much bigger infrastructure and has people based there. Yeah. So, uh, before the show, uh, we, uh, we, you know, through the, through the bio that I collected from you, I found that you were also an LP investor, right? You've, you've done mm-hmm. several, uh, several different LP deals. I think even over, over 20. So, you know, in this scenario, I, you know, what I'm trying to really educate my audience about is, is how do other investors think about investing? And, you know, you obviously have your own active portfolio with Wildborn Capital, uh, but then you also invest in other people's deals. So, you know, you mentioned this, uh, this concept of, you know, I don't know, you know, you know, Austin really well, but you, you wouldn't know North Carolina as well. And so when you started doing LP investments and, and how, how that shifted over time and, and why you go, why you go invest with other people. Uh, Cause I want to show that, you know, that a lot of fund operators are also diversifying more than in their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was an LP investor long before I was a, an active, you know, GP sponsor. I, I didn't get into real estate with the goal of, you know what, I want to go build a big portfolio and, and, and have all these assets and raise all this money. It was a, Hey, I, it, it's an investment that I get again. It, it, it makes sense to me. Um, I just be a passive investor, look for early ways to, to not necessarily retire early, but it's a good return. You know, it's something that I don't need to go have to, I don't have to do. I was you know doing a lot of different things working at the time, but just, I think like any other investor, I, I, I believed in the hard asset aspect of it. I believed in all the different ways that the real estate works and not a huge believer in the, just the stock market and just sort of putting it into an index fund and hoping that things go up. Like I could, I love the hard asset aspect. So that's how I started. And then I kind of just slowly, okay, that's great. I'm going to go buy some rental properties and and then I bought another and then bought a little bit bigger. And it just sort of snowballed to this, you know, we sit here today. It was never the, the intent and the goal. Um, I think that that the key thing for me, and you, you talk about investing in, in other people's deals and diversifying, and I mean, it, it's about betting on the, the jockey, you know, and I think the that's what Anytime I'm looking at a deal uh, from a passive standpoint, and certainly you know we've got folks that come into our deals that want to you know look up our skirt and our background and ask tough questions. Like that's out 100. You should. I mean, like you're the market's important, the business plan is important, but who is the sponsor that you're betting on? You know, and and how do they respond in times of crisis? What decisions do they make? Are they really thinking with your best interest or are they out, you know, is the deal structured where it's, there's good alignment and 
I mean, certainly we've had some deals where gotten burned, made some, learned some lessons about getting, you know, sucked into a really a, a sexy looking business plan, high risk deal. And you realize that, you know, I bet on the wrong jockey. Um, and, and that's, I think the reason I continue to sort of invest in, in other deals and put money in funds of other folks is like, I, I'm not everywhere. I, I recognize geographic diversity is, is valuable. Um, but I'm not the expert there. So, you know, finding people you, you can trust in, in those, whether it's a different vertical, different geography. Uh, but I'm always thinking about who, who, who am I investing with more than what? That's something that I'm very much thinking about right now, active versus passive. Uh, and, and, you know, I have a, I, I probably make half of my income from, from passive investments and I make half of my income from my active real estate portfolio. It's interesting that you went and had all these passive investments and then went active. Whereas I'm in this position where I, I'm the opposite. I have all, I had active investments and now I've been diversifying into passive and I'm realizing how much mind space it frees up. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm giving up some slight returns for being more passive, but the, the time I get back is somewhat more valuable. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to continue to make that transition. Well, talk to me about why you went the other way. Um, it is, it is kind of counter thought, you know, I think you, you get into it and you're like, Oh, I'm going to sit on the beach and I'm going to just have all this time. And, and that's, that's the dream. You know, you just got mailbox money of whatever your target number is every month that you can, Hey, I, I don't have to go do anything. And I think the more assets that I bought and the further we got along the journey, I just realized like, man, I just fundamentally love the deal. I love the, the fact that I can see it that I can you, know, you can have a vision if it's a value add deal or, or or the just I mean the creativity involved in a development deal to look at a old derelict building or a patch of ground and, and seeing some of these like really big redevelopment plays that have happened in, in different cities and you're like man the the creativity and 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 just the conviction of somebody to go make that kind of play is it's just always been of interest and I and I think Doing the deal, I realized like I would be bored to tears. I've got too much ADD to just sit and do nothing. And and the active being a participant in it is super exciting. And then at the same point, the truly the relationships, having the conversations, getting to know about you and you know your family and your goals, like that is a you get to connect with people at a more intimate level than you do just you know with your your kids parents who are your friends and you have sort of surface level relationships with, I think that connection piece and, and the creativity is just, I'm having a lot of fun. Um, and realized it's, I'd, I'd be bored sitting around doing nothing, you know, playing golf, going to the beach all the time. Like I just, it, it's fun to be the, the, the art of the deal, you know, putting something together, finding it. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I resonate. I just, uh, I'm trying to play it at a slightly higher level of just, Focusing on doing passive deals versus active deals, um, but that's why we we invest in funds like you. So, so I, I get that. How has inflation and what's happening in the economy affected how you look at at buying? Right. So you've been doing this, I think, almost close to a decade. Uh, and yeah, I, I misquoted you earlier, but yeah, eight hundred eight hundred million assets under management. Like, I imagine that the way that you look at buying assets and the environment and 
and how everything is changing is different today than it was. I'd love to understand how that how that's changed, and then what your like what's your prediction for what's going to happen over the next couple of years? Um, well, certainly it's it's been a, a a very interesting year. You know, real estate sort of uniquely has felt the pain uh, of the you know hike in interest rates and sort of what that's done to your ability to to, to get any amount of leverage on a deal. Uh, the way that you underwrite deals is, is looked very different, and you know, because of that, we've not been very active this year. We've closed on two new projects this year. Both of them are new development oriented. So we have a, a, a builder developer as who's our partner. And we are you know, kind of a build, uh, build a core strategy where we're going to build it, lease it up and then operate it. So it's again, kind of five to seven year type horizon, not meant to be a build it and sell it. Um, those have, have made a little bit more sense where because you know you're not trying to go sell it immediately, and and you want some of the the longer term tangible aspects of of real estate. With the uh, you know it, it is a great inflation hedge. Um, you you still can get the, the some positive leverage. So, but on the acquisitions front, we've not done uh, deals because it just it just hasn't made a lot of sense, and and that's something I think you always got to be conscious of. And you know one of the reasons as a company we've stayed very lean, um, not having to have a big overhead where you're trying to do deals because you need to generate a fee because you need to meet payroll and just you need you know some base revenue to, to keep your company going. Uh, we've we've really worked hard to avoid that. We have a six person company so we can we can weather storms like this and frankly just kind of be patient, manage the deals, uh, the portfolio that we've got and you know we'll look for and wait for opportunities on the acquisitions front that either Come from a distressed deal that you know has, has fallen out or gone back to the bank, um, or wait for the environment to to calm down a little bit and, and acquisitions make sense again. But I think you got to be patient and, and um, it you know it's just ride the wave a little bit. When you say you need to be patient, like what are you waiting for? Are you are you waiting for prices to come down? Do you think they're too high? Give me an idea of what what that means. Yeah, I mean, so we're not we're not trying to time the market, and, and I think you know one of the things that that we always have believed and continue to believe, you know, we're we're long term believers in Austin and sort of the Central Texas growth story, and being residential housing focused, it, it's about population growth and job growth. Like those are sort of the two metrics that we obsess over and, and are always tracking. And we've been lucky, you know, we've been a the, one of the, the the most prolific creator of jobs in the country Austin has for you know most of the last decade. I, I think even this year we're going to finish uh, again um at or or near the top of that list. So it's not about timing it in a 2 or 3 year window. It's it's hey, is this a, a an investment an asset in a location that we feel good about if we go long? You know, and long might be 5 years, it might be 10 years. It could be more than that, but if you've got the right sort of tailwinds from a big macro environmental standpoint, that's one of the benefits I think of, of real estate. You know, if you're if you've got a loan that's amortizing, you you know you, it is an inflation hedge. You're buying in today's dollars. You know, you're selling it in the future and in, in tomorrow's dollars. Like it, it has all those benefits. There's tax benefits of it. So being patient means sticking to your underwriting fundamentals. Um, you know, looking at hey. Interest rates are a lot higher than they were. That factors into to the way you look at deals and sort of what makes sense, but not bending on your underwriting criteria just to go like, 
hey, this is a deal we think is, is going to be great. And you don't really, truly believe that. Um, I think that's, to me, what being patient is. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have like a rough criteria or a buy box you're able to share? You know, I, I'm, I'm starting to teach this idea of, of having a buy box as an investor. You know, you need to have, you know, in my buy box, uh, when I buy single family homes, I buy them that have at least 2,000 square feet that are 1965 or older that... Uh, or newer or, you know, what, and yeah. that really helps me filter out what properties are great fits. You've mentioned things like having a great location, uh, the North, Northwest or whatever is, is better than the Southeast. You know, what, what goes in that buy box? And I, I'd love to maybe understand the story of how you got there. Cause that's yeah. what makes a fund, right? Like that's what makes a fund interesting. Yeah. So, so our, our buy box, I mean, the, 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 in the hard and faster criteria, it's central Texas, right? So you're never going to see something that's Florida or Atlanta or Houston, even. I mean, we are, we are a central Texas focused group. So that's, that's number one. And then I think within that, there are, there are different criteria. If we're looking at a value add deal, um, that's going to be something eighties to early two thousands, maybe even mid two thousands. I'll tell you in San Antonio, our buy box doesn't include 1980s product eight foot ceiling like we've just seen there's there's a literal sort of hard cap on where you can push those rents to so we think you know nine foot ceiling is really important um that typically means 2000 you know year 2000 vintage there might be some late 90s stuff but nothing was really built in the early 90s mid 90s as texas was coming out of the the savings and loan crisis so um we do have criteria but it's gonna be a little bit more tailored to like what's the business plan if it's a a newer construction wrap deal that we're looking at the location of both today, but like what the future of that location looks like is really, really important. You know, within that we're looking at schools, you know, what do the schools look like? If you look at sort of our portfolio and you sort of track the dots across the map, more often than not, there's going to be a story about the schools that are, that that feeds to. We own a, a deal. Uh, it was, completed in 2019 and it is the only apartment building zoned for that can ever be built that will go to a specific elementary school which is a very highly rated competitive uh school that people love send their kids to the only apartment that can ever go to that just based on the zoning that's a very compelling that was our point of conviction about that it's a great area uh my brother lives in, in the neighborhood that surrounds it but it's like okay i get it there can't be more supply sure there can be more supply in Southwest Austin. There can be more stuff that, that, that comes on. But within this sort of micro pocket, that's it. This is will be the only deal. If you want to go to that school, which people do, you value that, this is the apartment. It's that type of, of conviction and story point that, that, that we have kind of over and over and over. So it's more about the story of the deal, which again, maybe why I love the, the, the active participation in the deals because there's a story to them. Less than like, hey, here's our check the box. Does it if it if it checks these four boxes, we're in. It's never that simple. Um, but but schools is is typically a big example uh, of something we're going to pay a ton of attention to. Uh, when again, you're talking housing and people with their families and their kids, like that that matters. So pay a lot of attention to it. I love I love that. That it makes so much it adds so much more color into how you pick deals, which is I think ultimately like how someone decides they want to invest with you. Like do they. Like hearing that insight, it just it adds uh, a trust and and, and uh, expertise component. So uh, I'm glad you dove into that. Where my next question would be, 
what's something that you've had conviction about and it turned out to not be the case? Because I'm imagining this is where all the learnings happen, right? And, and, it, and it just increases your conviction in your expertise in doing deals moving forward. Can you, can you walk us through a story maybe of, of, uh, of, of one of those examples? Yeah. Um, you know, a couple that, that come to mind and, and luckily like locationally, we've not, we've not missed. And right? again, I think helps local like that part. We always feel pretty good about. I think part of the reason that I mentioned San Antonio it's going to be a pretty unique story for us to, to jump into kind of an eighties built eight foot ceiling product. We've seen there be a, a cap on those rents, but we've also had gone through some, some pain with some just older plumbing, big leaks that, that happened, things you didn't have accounted for in your, in your CapEx plan that we had a, a $300,000 plumbing leak that was you know one of our main lines that no one knew about it because it hadn't impacted the, you know, people's showers were still working and, and, and all that, but we get these water bills and they're just massive. I'm like, okay, where's this? This is wrong. There's show, there's no possible way we're using this much water. Well, it was going right into a storm drain. Cause we were like, come show me where the river is that should be flooding through the property. If, if we're using this much water and like, you don't have that sort of stuff built into your business plan. I mean, sure. You've got some contingencies and, but Going through a couple of those uh, on some of these older buildings where, you know, it doesn't matter how much contingency, you don't have that much. And luckily, you know, being able right. to work out of that and still we exited that deal and it was a great win for investors. We, we actually beat our pro forma um, just barely, but we did. Uh, I think that's part of the reason you, we're always going to be a little bit more cautious on older product. And I think from a due diligence standpoint, we'll do double the amount of due diligence on the plumbing and on some of the older components of hey, what type of, of pipes are they? What condition are they in? We're going to put a, a camera down at every single line, understand a lot of times we've gotten the plumbing systems mapped coming out of that to where we know there's a certain type. If you're on a, a, a looped boiler system, you know, okay, here's a boiler. Well, what buildings does that serve and how is it going through? They're like, we need to know those things going in so we can appropriately underwrite a, a, a budget. If, what state is the is the system in and what does it look like if we got to go in and fix it those are th examples of things you learn after you know you wake up to a 80 some thousand dollar water bill that goes on for four and five months till anybody can figure out what the heck's going on yeah i actually have uh i, I just had one of those happen to my uh, portfolio of 12 properties same thing water water bill is like 10x what it should be so i think yeah. it, it highlights a point that i want to emphasize which is you know, I think these learnings are only valuable if you continue playing the game. So uh, I, I think there's this, uh, I kind of have this pet peeve or just this, um, maybe it's just a lack of knowledge or awareness, but it's, you know, a lot of people want to get into investing in certain deals. Uh, maybe it's buying residential real estate or buying a multifamily property, but it's, uh, you know, the, the learning curve is so high. Um, that to just do one or two deals and it not be your profession is almost, you know, you're, you're cutting yourself short. And, and I think the example you gave is a, is a perfect indicator of that, right? Like, so now moving yeah. forward on every deal, you've added into your SOP, your, you know, standard operating procedure, and you're now um, avoiding that and being able to deliver consistently higher returns moving forward. So yeah. yeah. What's your take on that? Do you agree active, uh, you know, 
there's no question you're going to continue to stack experiences and learnings and be, be a, a more aware, more knowledgeable investor. You're just savvier. The more time you, you, you do deals, you run into things. Um, and so I, I do think that there, that that's right. Yeah. You know, I am more aware of things now than I was the first time we raised money. You know, I, I was more aware of things just based on my own portfolio of stuff before we got to that point. So, um, I think that that's true. It's interesting because you're the, the, the life cycle of an investor and you're talking about, I kind of, you know, swimming upstream going from passive to, to active. If, if the goal is to transition to more passive, I mean, at some point you do want to stop, you know, being in the weeds and, and you want to sort of check out. And, and so you might only end up doing a couple of deals and, and you've met your, your, your goals or your objectives or, or you get shiny object syndrome. You sort of move on. I, I think the challenge with real estate investing and you know, real estate for, for, for an investor is recognizing certainly, you know, go back to the last 10 years and kind of the way that returns were coming in and cap rates were compressing and, you know, people were churning out these huge returns. That's more of an aberration than, than what will, is likely going to continue. So it's, it's a, it's a business that has always been, I think, sort of get rich slow and sort of wealth preservation. You know, it, there is a hard asset. There's not, it's not some fictitious stock in a company that may or may not exist or do well. And like, I can go see the building that I own, you know, or have invested in. I can, I can see the financials. It's, it's not that difficult, but it's also not a, Hey, you're not going to hit a a, five X. Heck, you're not going to hit a three X very often, unless you've just caught exactly the right moment in time. Uh, and got really, really lucky. So being and staying patient, recognizing, understanding why you are investing in real estate and sort of where that fits within your portfolio, because it, it could and should be a part of it. It's probably not the whole thing, but um, that's that's probably the part where you guys you got to stay patient. It's it's get rich slow and asset preservation as much as wealth creation and and you know hitting big multiples. So I'm with you. I you know the the. The next 10 years are going to be definitely different than, than they have been the last 10 years. Uh, even if you just look, um, the last time mortgage rates were this high were was, uh, I'm looking at a graph right now, back in 2001, uh, or even just slightly before that. So, like, obviously, the last like two decades, we're not, we, we interest rates are not where they are then. Um, and I have two questions, one on the class of product that you have and the other on, on your prediction moving forward. I think moving forward, obviously, the next decade is going to be different. Uh, and, you know, I think there's one of three scenarios, you know, either we think interest rates are going to go lower again. And so uh, m- maybe a good time to be in re- investing in these types of assets, you know, either it's staying the same or if we expect interest rates to go up, I would argue it would be a terrible idea to be investing in these types of assets. You know, if we have anything like we did back in um, the nineties or, or even the eighties, if you know, we have interest rates above 10%, that would be catastrophic to, to any kind of investor in these assets. Do you agree where do you think it's going um, and why? I don't know where it's going. You know, I, I think would love to, everybody wants to, to make a prediction. I think I'm, you know, you're biased. If you're in the real estate space, you'd love for it to be lower. Right. It's because it's been great times the last two decades, to your point. Free, cheap, easy money makes makes everything look good. I think one of the things about back to sort of residential housing, you know, people people have to live somewhere. And so interest rates are what they are. 
if they go to 10%, pricing will have to adjust and, and what people are willing to buy and sell. Like it, it may be painful for the people that own stuff now. Are we going to hit home runs on our portfolio if they hit 10%? No. But you got to continue to to look at, okay, where are people going to live? And if interest rates are at 10%, how much more unattainable is the average price of a home? And the people that are locked in at you know a 3%, 4%, 5%, hell, even the people that are locking in now at 7 if they go to 10 are be feeling pretty good and they're not going to be moving. You still got to live somewhere. So things will readjust. And I think it goes back to if... if if interest rates are at 10, you know, as far as what that means for the macro economy, I'm, I'm not smart enough to, to know all of what that means. But like, what else are you going to be investing in? Again, I, the, you go back to sort of the fundamentals, at least what I love and believe in is like, I, I got tax benefits from real estate. You got the depreciation. It's, it's a hedge on appreciation. Rents are, are going to, you know, it's going to stay full. And I, I can't say that about office. You know, I, I First thing I do every morning is sort of hit my knees and, and thank God we're not in, in the office space because there's just so much uncertainty and conversation. What does that look like? Our company's coming back. You know, now it's, I see headlines where, you know, CEOs can't wait for 2024. They're going to be, you know, jamming their people back to the office full time as, as sort of some of the power drifts back to, to, to employers. Um, is that going to happen? I don't know. You know, does it, will people continue on work from home? Do you need less space? There's a lot of uncertainty. You know, the the way that residential housing looks could change. You do more work from home. You need to create more office spaces, co-working within an apartment building. There's a lot of solves for that. But I do know that people need somewhere to live. And, and I think that's something that that we look at again, big picture macro, not a two-year horizon or a five-year horizon, but look at 10-year horizon or, or or longer. Where do the jobs go? Where are the people going and moving? And you know they they have been moving uh, to Texas and to Central Texas, and it looks like they will continue to move uh, there. And so I, I think pay attention to that a ton, and, and and not not worried about interest rates, but I can't control them. You know, and I do think if if they hit ten percent, you're gonna have more renters because no one wants to buy a home or can afford to buy a home. Um, I may not have more office workers. You know, I may not have. I don't know what retail looks like if you know that that continues to shift and ebb and flow and um, but getting back to sort of residential housing feels pretty pretty stable. The other piece that you covered earlier is that you have different products. So you have Class A and and maybe something that's not Class A. Am I, am I following? And yeah. for everyone that's uh, you know in the audience that doesn't know, there's 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 different grades or quality or quality might not even be the right way to describe it, but classes of real estate where. There's luxury class A. Think of these as like your brand spanking new apartment buildings that have uh, that you're paying you know super high rents on. And then there's B and C and D. Uh, and you know D might be in the ghetto and it might be a rundown uh, a type of building. How, how would you describe the differences between those for our audience? And then I'll, I'll hop into my question. Yeah, I think that that's right. You know, it, it's the nicest, newest properties in town. The downtown high rays are, are, are A higher rents, higher demographic, higher income. It's a little bit subjective on what makes an A versus a B, a B versus a C, C versus a D. It's kind of funny. You hardly ever hear anybody talk about, oh, I got a D, I'm investing in a D class deal. And we've always kind of said, hey, I don't want to be, we've never been the group trying to buy a C class deal and turn it into a B. 
Um, I think that in itself is is difficult, and there's a lot of challenge in making a big transition of who your your demographic is and, and so what that looks like. Um, but you nailed. It. I think it's it's pretty subjective what the difference is where those lines are, but at a high level, agree with with the way you laid it out. Blair, I uh, I couldn't hear you for the last uh, little minute it cut out, but uh, I'm explaining. I assume that you were just talking about the. Uh, the different class A, B, and C. What I'd love to get into now is, okay, so given, given class A, B, and C, uh, I, as an investor, have been thinking about, especially over the next five years, when we think about recessions and we think about um, everything that's happening in the economy and everything being unstable, um, my perspective is to invest in things that are... Uh, on the lower side of the, of the classes. So, you know, class C, class B, whatever you want to call them, anything that's not luxury class A, for the reason being that in times of economic crisis, people aren't going to be splurging and and going towards these um, luxury class A buildings. People are tightening their wallets. And so that'll create more demand at the bottom of the food chain for workforce housing and things like that. So, so given, so, so that's one perspective. You just mentioned that you, uh, you know, are looking at deals or have deals that are class A that are structured maybe as more longer term term deals. How would you, I guess, like you clearly have a different perspective about the market and class A versus, you know, class C given the next couple of years. What would be your take on why? Well, I think you're right. First off, that that you. If you're at the very top of the market and there's a, a, a slowdown, a pullback, a recession, whatever you want to call it, people are, are wanting to, to pare down. I can always, hey, I need to spend less in rent. And so I'm, my, I'm no longer willing or wanting to pay $3,500 a month for my downtown building. I'll move and I'll, I'll pay you know $2,500 and save $1,000 a month. That person's still kind of in an A-class apartment in my mind. I mean, if 25, particularly in Austin, if you've left downtown and, and that the, the A-class stuff we own tends to be more in that realm. It's, it's sort of wrap built, n- nice product, but a little bit sort of first tier outside of downtown locations. Um, I think there's a line at which, and I've always felt this way, you want your incomes on, call it your B minus asset to be able to sustain a small blip. You know, someone losing their job, like the service worker economy when COVID happened, right? Like instantly food servers, everybody like they, they weren't, they were out of a job. They weren't working. Like if you were a, a, a day laborer, I mean, if your income is sub $50,000, like you're much more paycheck to paycheck, you have no safety net. There's a lot of risk there. Um, and, and if that's your tenant base. So I think being in that, the sweet spot to me has been that kind of class B, B plus, A minus area that not top of the market rent where you could see some pullback, but a stable enough demographic and sort of income base that you can, you have a bit of a nest egg. You can, you've got some savings. You've got the ability to, you know, be creative if you need to be to, to consult, to, you know, put something together that if you're, if you're true hand to mouth, like there's a lot of, of uh risk on on the, the downside as well too so um that's kind of been my my thought on demographics that's fascinating uh definitely not a perspective i've heard 
uh, before, but it makes sense. Uh, it definitely makes sense. You know, if I think about the, the groups that I'm in and the people that I know and the type of properties I have, I, I work all in affordable housing. And you're so right. Like, uh, if, if something goes sideways, that, that tenant has issues and, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not pretty. It's, it's not also easy as a landlord. So uh, yeah. I get that. Fascinating. Okay. How can people learn more about you and what you do and, and, uh, and get on your list? Um, well, so, I mean, we're, again, try to be pretty easy to find, uh, our company's Wildhorn Capital, uh, the website, it's wildhorncap.com. And we, you know, try to have some good kind of educational content there. You can certainly join our, our newsletter list. Uh, you can always email me. I'm, I'm just, I'm Andrew at Wildhorn Cap and happy to have a conversation, talk about, you know, more of this kind of what we've seen, what we're, what we're up to, but website and email is typically the easiest. Thank you, Andrew. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, now I have some final thoughts for our listeners. There are over 350 of you who are already on our email list. But if you aren't already, if you'd like access to our database of private investment opportunities that we see every week and get a first look at the opportunities that we put together here at Grow Your Cashflow, you can join our investment club at growyourcashflow.io. Now, if you found this particular episode helpful, don't forget to share it with that friend that might benefit. Uh, and lastly, if you have any questions or suggestions or just love the particular show, reach out to me on Twitter at Pascal Wagner, number one. Thanks, guys. Uh, and I will see you on the next show.